Good morning. It's good to be together again this morning. I pray that the Lord has helped you this week and has prepared you to grow in His grace today as we look at His Word together. We'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3 as we continue looking at the consequences of the fall of mankind so far. We have looked at Adam and Eve's initial reaction, trying to cover themselves and hide from their covenant God. We've seen God question them and how they sought to cast blame away from themselves. And this morning, as we focus our attention on verses 14 to 19, we will see God cursing the serpent and the ground from which man was taken, and we will see him giving Adam and Eve consequences for their sin. Let's begin by reading our passage together, Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to begin in verse 8 for the sake of context and read through verse 19. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Hear now the words of the only true and living God. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you, ne you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his holy word. You may be seated. Well, this morning, as we continue to look at the fallout of Adam breaking the covenant of works, we will look at our passage this week in just one point. Curses, consequences, and hope. Where today we will see in verses 14 to 19 the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin, and we will also see that in the curse of the deceiver is where hope is found for mankind. Before we begin, let us go to the Lord in prayer together, asking him for his help. Let's pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Father, we desire that you would glorify yourself 
in the midst of your people this morning. Father, you have glorified it in your people offering up freely songs of praise because you have exercised your saving power in our lives. And we ask, Father, that you would just continue to multiply that in our own hearts and minds, in our own songs and the words that come out off of our lips. And Father, we ask that you would grant repentance, faith to those among us who do not know you, who are far from you, that you would visit them today through the preaching of your gospel, and that today would be the day of salvation for them such that the chorus of voices that sing praises to you will be multiplied, and that you would be pleased to be merciful and gracious on your image bearers. Father, we ask that you would be with our brothers and sisters this morning as well that are gathered in many different places. We lift up this morning specifically Providence Baptist Church in Lacanto, Florida, and Friendship Baptist Church here in Ashe County. Father, be with our brethren in these churches. Minister to them by your word and spirit this morning. Cause them to grow in holiness and Christ-likeness. Father, be pleased to begin among them a spiritual awakening that would result in zeal for your worship, zeal for your word, zeal and compassion to see that in their community which is lost be found. Oh, Father, so work among our brothers and sisters in these two congregations to use them as gospel embassies in their community. Father, we also lift up our persecuted brethren throughout the world. This morning, we lift up our persecuted brothers and sisters in Pakistan. Father, we ask that you would hide them in the shadow of your wing. Those who have sought refuge and strength in your Son, not from the fear of men in this world, but for the fear of you and your condemning wrath upon fallen man. O oh, Father, use them mercifully in Pakistan to spread your gospel so that in generations to come it would no longer be known as a Muslim nation, but it would be known as a nation where your gospel shines brightly and where missionaries are sent out to other parts of the world to see your gospel go forth and all nations be brought under the feet of your Son. Father, we turn now our attention to the passage which in your kind providences you have put before us this morning. We ask that you would help us to hear your word, to believe it, and to obey it. We ask that you would use it in merciful and gracious ways in our lives, and that you would not lead us into the temptation of disbelief, but that you would deliver us from such evil. And Father, we plead that this morning you would deliver those unbelievers that are among us, that you would deliver them from the kingdom of darkness. You would deliver them from Satan and from the dominion of sin in their lives. You would bring them into the kingdom of your Son, into the light. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. Well, there's a scene in one of my favorite TV shows, The West Wing, and it begins with some commanders and generals just sitting around casually in the situation room, and they're talking about different kinds of things that are unimportant. They're actually talking about different kinds of coffee, and they are having a very casual conversation, and all of a sudden, the president storms in, and they stand to attention, and he 
tells them to sit down. Now, in the storyline of the show, an American plane had been shot down, and so the generals began talking to the president about different responses, different retaliatory strike scenarios, and one of the generals is talking to the president how all of these different scenarios that they are giving to him, how they all represent a proportional response. And when the general says this, the president interrupts the general and asks a very pointed question. He asks, what is the virtue of a proportional response? Generals start looking around at each other like the kid called on in class that doesn't want to answer. And as they are confused about what the point the president is making, he continues, I'm serious. What is the virtue of a proportionate response? Why not a disproportionate response? Why not make it known that if you shoot down one of our planes, we don't bomb an armory or, or a communications depot. We don't come back with a proportionate response. And then he slams his fist on the table and says, we come back with total disaster. It's a pretty intense scene in the shows, you can imagine, and it gets my blood pumping and I almost heart, give a hearty amen at the end of the speech. But I use it as an illustration this morning to say that we can praise God. That here in the Garden of Eden, he did not give Adam and Eve and all mankind that followed from them a proportionate response to their sin. When Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a proportionate and a just response would have been for God to allow all mankind to continue in their sin and misery and face an eternity of hell. That would have been a proportionate response to their sin. And that is exactly what God gave to Satan and to the fallen angels. And it is a fearful thing that some men and women created in his image will get this same justice in the end. But brothers and sisters, we can be thankful today that God has given us a disproportionate response. Not the kind of disproportionate response that President Bartlett was talking about where you go beyond what seems proportional to something more severe like total disaster. But in God's mercy and in his grace, he has gone in the opposite direction of what we deserve. He has not given us a proportionate response of justice, of justice but he has given to us the disproportionate response of mercy and grace and redemption. Our God has not given us total disaster. He has given us eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this morning as we get into our passage, as we go back to the Garden of Eden and those initial moments after the fall of mankind into sin and misery. As we do this today, let's notice that while God doesn't drop the hammer of his justice on Adam and Eve, while that is true, it is also true that there is a good bit of proportionality in the curses and consequences that he gives out. The serpent who conquered the woman through deception is going to be conquered by one of her offspring. The woman who persuaded her husband to join her in her sin will now suffer pain in helping him fill the earth and will be ruled over by him in their marriage. And the man who was to cultivate the earth will now labor in it by the sweat of his brow and will in the end return to this ground that he labors over. He who caused the ground to be cursed will have to return to the dust from which he was made in the end. Let's begin looking at these things in our passage. Look at verses 14 and 15 with me as I read them again. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, 
and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I briefly mentioned a couple of weeks ago that in the fall, the order of creation got reversed. The woman listened to the serpent, the man listened to the woman, and no one listened to God. Well, that is true, but we should take note that here in verses 14 through 19 today, we will see God reestablishing the created order as he gives out the consequences for his creatures in reverse order according to their actions. The serpent first, then the woman second, and lastly, the man. And in so doing, God makes the serpent subject to the seed of the woman, the woman subject to the man and all things subject to God himself. Sin of man has taken his liberty in the garden away. His sin has replaced it with exile from his home, bondage to a new king, Satan. His sin has taken his benevolent dominion that he was supposed to exercise over creation and replaced it with the wicked dominion of sin and Satan. We are told in the New Testament that even creation, even the trees outside, even the ground, even the stars groan under the weight of sin. Now, while all of this is true, it is crucial as we move into this section of God pronouncing consequences for sin in verses 14 through 19, it is crucial that we notice that while Adam and Eve are going to suffer severe consequences for their sin, while this is true, we must notice that God does not curse either one of them. If you look at verse 14, you can see plainly that God curses the serpent. In verse 17, he plainly curses the ground, but for man and the woman... Some of their consequences for their sin gets delayed. Adam and Eve are going to die. They are going to return to the dust of the earth. But in God's patience, they will have many years to seek reconciliation with God through repentance and faith and the promise that we're going to see this morning in verse 15. And we ask yourself, how patient was God with them? We're going to see it in a few weeks when Pastor Quinn begins preaching in Genesis 5. Adam had 930 years of God's mercy and patience. Put it another way that shows just how long God's mercy and patience was with Adam. He lived long enough to see Noah's father. Noah's father, Lamech, was 56 years old when Adam died. That's how long God's patience and long-suffering was with Adam and Eve. And how much hope did the long-suffering God give to Adam and Eve during these many years? Well, every time Eve gets pregnant, or every time one of their children, or grandchildren, or great-grandchildren, or great-great-grandchildren, every time... One of them got pregnant. They all had the hope of Genesis 3.15, that perhaps this one will be that promised offspring that's going to crush the head of the serpent. Very briefly, beloved, let us learn that from the very beginning of sin entering into humanity, our God has been patient. Our God has been long-suffering. Just as his patience gave Adam and Eve the time and space to repent and trust in his promises east of Eden, just as this is true, we are instructed in 2 Peter 3.15 that we also must count our Lord Jesus' delay in returning. We are to count that as salvation. Every day that our Lord Jesus does not return is not just another day, beloved. But it is another day for us to enjoy the salvation that he has purchased for us. Every day that he does not return is another day for us to give thanks to him, to worship him, to serve him, to urge his gospel on the lost, to continue to seek and save 
that which is lost, whether our unbelieving children, whether our family members or our neighbors or people that we come in contact with, and unbelieving friends among us. You may not realize it now, but every day that you are alive, every time you take a breath and your heart beats, it is a day that God is being patient with you. And ironically, it's the same fact that you have been graciously granted another day, day after day. Ironically, it is this gracious fact that Satan uses in your life to cause you to be presumptuous. Presumptuous that you are not going to experience judgment in the end. Satan is using this, friend, to trap you. I want to plead with you this morning to be warned. Be warned to repent now before your days come to an end and you find yourself in eternal torment. Oh, unbelieving friend, do not presume upon God's kindness and his long-suffering. For we know that you will not have 930 years to consider God's kindnesses. We do not know when he will snatch our life away from us at any moment. And so I plead with you now to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, that he who knew no sin became sin, that any and everyone who would tell God they are sorry, who they would, would, would repent of their sins, he has promised, he has guaranteed that those who do that and look to his son in faith will not receive condemnation or judgment, but will receive eternal life. And so, unbelieving friend, do not presume upon God's kindness that another day is going to tick off and you're going to have another day. But we plead with you that today is the day of salvation. Do not delay. Do it now. And if you have questions after the service, talk with the Christian that you came with or talk with one of the pastors here. For there is nothing we desire more than to see God's people grow in holiness and the lost to be found. Let's turn our attention back to verses 14 and 15 here and the serpent's curse. Notice here at the very beginning that God does not question the serpent. God just moves straight in on imposing this curse on him. Pastor Scott pointed this out to me, that this helps us to see that God deals differently with his image bearers than he did or does with the angels. When Satan and the other angels rebelled in heaven, there was no grace for them. There was no redemption offered to them. There was no redeemer given for them. They sinned against God, and then in his sovereign prerogative, he gave them justice with no possibility of redemption. Beloved, let us be grateful that our God has not so dealt with us, his image bearers. Let us be thankful that he has provided redemption for us and offers reconciliation to any and all who will repent of their sins against him which makes the constant repentant the constant preaching of repentance necessary. Now the first thing that we can see in verse 14 about Satan's curse is that it is directed at the creature. The beginning of this curse is directed at the creature that Satan had possessed in order to tempt Adam and Eve. This creature who had been possessed who was responsible for the fall of man, is cursed to eat dust all of his days. The man whom the serpent had plunged into sin and misery was made from the dust and would die, and the man would return to the dust because of his sin. And as a perpetual reminder of his role in this event, the serpent was cursed to lick and eat this dust all the days of his life. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, if you're thinking about snakes, well, snakes naturally slither on the ground. That's what they do. Is this really a curse? Well, as we are going to see when we look at the punishments for the man and the woman, what we will see when we look at their punishment is that it involves a change and a painful aspect added to something that they were naturally created to do. 
women were made to have children. They were made to have their husbands lead them. But as we will see in our passage, there is now going to be pain and difficulties there. Men were made to work. Men were made to live by what they worked, and now there is going to be pain and difficulties there also. Likewise, here in the serpent's curse, we will see that the serpent who was made to go on its belly is now going to have difficulty there in licking the dust as he does. We can also see in verse 15 a second aspect to the serpent's curse. Look at it with me. When it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And whereas the first aspect of the serpent's curse dealt with the beast of the ground that Satan had possessed, verse 15 deals with Satan himself. This new God of the world, this prince of the power of the air who had put the king and the queen of the world under his dominion through the garden temptation will in the end have his work destroyed by one of the offspring of the woman. God puts enmity, he puts hostility, strife, conflict, opposition between Satan and the woman, and then he goes on to establish this conflict between the woman's offspring and the offspring of Satan, going on to say in the latter half of verse 15 that a single offspring, he, is going to deliver a head wound to Satan himself. Notice that God doesn't say this promised offspring is going to deliver this wound to the offspring of the serpent's head, but God says that this promised offspring of the woman is going to bruise or crush Satan's head himself. We can also see here that Satan is simultaneously going to deliver a wound to this promised offspring's foot. Beloved, this is where our hope is found. And so it's not surprising because Satan is the enemy of our souls. It's not surprising that our hope is found in this curse that God is putting upon him. We can see here and we can learn here that the judgment of the wicked is always the deliverance of the righteous. This will never be more true than on that last day when our Savior returns. As we think about our hope in relation to our passage this morning, let us realize that this promise of God's curse upon Satan is the hope of mankind. The promise that an offspring of the woman is coming that is going to defeat him. And we can see that it is in this curse that God catches and defeats Satan in his own craftiness. What do I mean? We can see that in verse 15 it says that Satan will bruise the Redeemer's heel that the Redeemer is going to bruise his head. Now, when you hear that, you need to realize that this is why, this promise right here in Genesis 3.15 is why Satan has always sought to destroy the promised one, the Messiah. He has always sought to do so because he has always known from the garden on that the promised one was going to destroy him and his work in this world. Now think of the position that this puts Satan in when God curses him in this way. Satan deceived the woman and brought death to the human race, but God has now put Satan in the anxiety-ridden place of wondering which male child, which one, which one of these born of any woman in the whole world, which one Satan must always wonder and ask himself, is that the one that's going to get me? Is that the one that's going to crush my head? And so beginning in the very next chapter of Genesis, Satan, not knowing who this promised offspring will be, will get Cain to kill Abel. This continues throughout the scriptures with conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent always existing. And even when Satan comes to, to know and learn that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, 
What do we see him seeking to do in the early chapters of the gospel? We seek him, we see him plotting and seeking to get Herod to kill the newborn child. But imagine with me for a moment Satan, this crafty serpent who couldn't kill Jesus as a baby. He couldn't defeat him in the wilderness temptation. Imagine what Satan must have thought to himself when he finally saw Jesus, the promised offspring of Eve, the promised seed of Abraham, the promised son of David, the Messiah. Imagine what must have been going through his mind when he finally saw Jesus on the cross. He had to be thinking to himself, I got him. I did it. I proved God wrong. He was supposed to deal me a death blow, but I got him first. I killed him. As we talked about last week, ever since the fall of man, God has taken and made the wisdom of Satan and this world foolishness. Because we know that it was through the death of Christ that the death blow was struck to sin and Satan, death, hell, and the grave. Now, as we look at verse 15 closely, we can see that when it talks about offspring, there seems to be both a collective sense here as well as an individual sense here in this verse, and that's intended. Moving forward, there will be a seed of the woman and a seed of the serpent, two different humanities. To use the language of Scripture, moving forward, there will be a godly remnant, and there will be broods of vipers. We will see it as we move forward in Genesis in the coming weeks. We will see that there are clearly two distinct lines of genealogies that come about in Genesis. There's a godly line of humanity that we will see in the coming weeks proceeds through Seth. And there is an ungodly line of humanity that will proceed through Cain. And this promise of offspring through the godly line will become really important as we move through the book of Genesis. In fact, Moses is going to refer to it 41 times in the book of Genesis alone. This promise here in Genesis 3.15 is the promise which Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 patriarchs, it is the promise that they are serving. This promise here in Genesis 3.15 is the promise that brings about God's promises to Abraham when he promises that one of his seed or offspring is going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And it is this promise that gives the reason for the existence of the nation of Israel as a whole. They are the people blessed to be the ones who would bring the promised Messiah into the world. We can see here in Genesis 3.15 that there has always been and always will be strife, enmity, conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And this conflict will proceed not, until, not only until the promised Messiah comes, but it will continue until he comes again. We are in the throes of this conflict, beloved. This conflict is why, the reason why it has always been true that the seed of the serpent has always sought to persecute the seed of the woman. It is why we can be told in the scriptures that everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And this conflict is probably most familiar to us when we think about the couplets in the Bible, Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, David and Saul, circumcised and uncircumcised, spirit and flesh, elect and non-elect. However, we can also see in the last part of verse 15 that while two groups of people are going to develop, the point of this collective group is to bring about an individual offspring of the woman that is going to crush the head of the serpent. And in doing so, this promised offspring will rescue and redeem a remnant from Israel as well as a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on earth all together who are and will be 
under one king called the Israel of God, as Paul says in Galatians. You can see this when you consider the fact that verse 15 begins with enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent, but it ends with God speaking directly to Satan, and look what he says. He shall bruise your head, Satan, and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. Now, as we think about this fact, beloved, we should also be instructed by the ordering of these words in verse 15. What do I mean? Well, when we think of Jesus' suffering and death, we can tend to think of his suffering and death as just a passive thing, something that was inflicted upon him as though he was somehow helpless, though he was made a helpless man suffering a terrible injustice inflicted upon him, that things just happened to him. While it was an injustice, my point is that we can sometimes think of Christ, this offspring of the woman, and read the end of verse 15 like this. Satan is going to kill this promised offspring. Satan is going to exercise power over Christ. And in an ironic, miraculous twist against all odds, like in the movies, Christ is somehow, in the end, going to get victory over the serpent. This is obviously how Satan thought he would get the victory, as though there was a question here, a possibility that he could overturn this. That if he could just kill Jesus before Jesus got to him, then he could prove God wrong. We know Satan thought like this because if he didn't, he would have never have put it in the heart of Judas to betray Christ. However, beloved, we must remember that Jesus did not think of his death this way. And we must think of our Savior's death the way that he spoke of it. He didn't speak of his death as a passive action that just happened upon him as some helpless victim. But our powerful Savior says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Beloved, it wasn't just your Savior's death, but throughout his entire life, he was actively bruising the serpent's head. When you think of your Savior on the cross and see that suffering servant, meek and lowly, Beloved, you should also see a powerful king and savior who is doing things in a way that seems like foolishness to this world. Beloved, even in Jesus' suffering and death, he was the one who was actively bruising Satan's head. You can almost hear it in verse 15. The serpent is on the ground and the offspring has his heel bruised because he is stomping a mud hole in the serpent's head. He bruised his heel because he is the one crushing the serpent's head. He is the one exercising power and dominion and it is the serpent who strikes at his heel almost in a, a desperate attempt at defense. Beloved, make no mistake about it. Satan wishes that Jesus would leave him alone. Think about how all the demons respond to your Savior in the New Testament. And let that be instructive to you, brothers and sisters. Satan and his demons and the seed of the serpent in this world, they all wish the church, the bride of Christ, would leave them alone, would leave the kingdom of darkness alone. Beloved, it is no accident that the world is happy with your relationship with Christ as long as you keep it in the privacy of your own home. The world is happy to pat you on the head about your relationship to Christ as long as you keep it in the church building, as long as you keep it between your ears, and as long as it does not come out of your mouth, 
The world is happy to indulge you as long as you don't offend them with the gospel coming out of your mouth, beloved. But beloved, remember, just as our Savior actively crushed the serpent's head, so too we are to be on the offensive. Our Savior told us, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against what I am building. Just as Satan hated every woman who could produce the blessed seed that would crush his head, he hates every Christian who will not keep their mouth closed. He hates every Christian that evangelizes because every proclamation of the gospel could be that one where the full number of the elect is fully realized. It could be the one where Christ's return is imminent and Satan's eternal destruction is finalized. Satan's anxiety did not end at the birth of Christ's beloved. Far from it, Satan's anxiety will not end until the full number of the elect have been saved by their Savior. Not one drop of your Savior's blood will be wasted. And after that happens, beloved, and the clouds roll back and our Savior returns for his people, Satan's anxiety may be over, but his defeat and misery have just begun. Brothers and sisters, this is the victory that your Redeemer has accomplished for you. Brothers and sisters, your labor for your Savior in your lifetime, in your generation, in this world, is not in vain. Beloved, when we let the world shame us into silence, we give in to the serpent's desires. Because we are told what our God is doing in Romans 16 when Paul, speaking to the Roman church, says to the church, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Beloved, the God of peace, our God, is crushing Satan under our feet. It is still an active, engaged thing that Christ is accomplishing through his bride. We are, brothers and sisters, the bride of Christ. We are his helper, and we are continuing his work of crushing the skull of the serpent, not independent from him, but because we are united to him. And this is exciting, that we are a part of this in our generation, in our lifetimes. We are a part of this. But one of the problems that we have in performing this labor is that it's not a Marvel movie, beloved. It's not explosions and gun battles. It's not snipers up in the top of a tower. Beloved, what we need to realize is that what we find exciting in this world, in shows and in movies, the subtle serpent is using to deceive us into thinking that that's how God is going to put Satan under our feet. That the way God is going to do it's got to be exciting. It's got to get our blood pumping. We're going to go out with gospel guns ablazing, shot down for Jesus in a blaze of glory. Beloved, it is glorious, but the truth is that we must learn that our king is accomplishing this through gloriously ordinary means of grace. Our king is accomplishing these things through our gathering together this morning to worship him. Our king is accomplishing these things through our prayers, through evangelism, through baptism, through the Lord's Supper that we get to partake of together this morning. Our king somehow turning the world's wisdom into foolishness is bringing these things about through the reading of his word in your private devotions, through the public reading and preaching and teaching of the word. He is bringing these things about somehow in his mysterious providences through our singing praises to him in the name of Christ, offering up sacrifices to him and giving his 
his work in this world, giving to his work in this world and our offerings. He is accomplishing it as children obey their parents, as husbands love their wives, as husbands and wives raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Our king is accomplishing it as we live out in the world as salt and light as we go. Beloved, until we learn to be satisfied with the ordinary way in which our God, our King, has appointed to accomplish these extraordinary things, until we find His way of doing things exciting, until we find the opportunity to gather together and worship exciting, until we find the opportunity to bow at our, the, at our bedside and pray, until we find that exciting, until we find opening up his word and reading it exciting, until we find those things thrilling to our soul, thrilling to our soul to come to his table and partake, until we find those things exciting, we will be frustrated by constantly trying to do it in a way that the world finds exciting. Beloved, we must be satisfied and thrilled with an ordinary means of grace ministry, the right preaching of the word, the right administration of the sacraments, and the disciplining of God's people to and on each other towards holiness. Until we learn to be satisfied with that, beloved, we will be frustrated. Because that's how our king has chosen to do it. This is how our king has chosen in his wisdom to build his church such that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. That's how this promised offspring of the woman has determined in his sovereign prerogative to put all things under our feet. And it seems very ordinary and unexciting to us. And until we have a paradigm shift there, we will be frustrated. Let's move on now and look back at verse 16 and begin looking at the consequences that God gives to the man and the woman. Here in verse 16, God gives consequences to the woman. Listen to it again. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Eve was created to be fruitful and multiply with the man. She was made to be a suitable helper for him, to help him fill the earth and exercise a benevolent dominion over it. And we can see here in verse 16 that now she will have pain and conflict in both of these areas because of her sin. She is going to have a great increase in pain in the birthing process. But beloved, even here, there's comfort from Genesis 3.15 for the woman to be found. Comfort that can be found knowing that this suffering eventually is going to produce an offspring that will crush the head of the serpent. We can also see that she will have conflict with her husband as helper Because of Eve's sin, her natural desires will be against her God-given role and responsibility to help her husband and submit to his leadership. Her desires will be contrary to him. Her desires will be for what he is supposed to do. Her desires will be to continue to try and lead him just as she did at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But despite this reality and desires in her life, it is going to be met with frustration, as we can see at the end of verse 16. No matter how she may try to control and direct and lead her husband, he is still going to rule over her. This is what God has put into the created order. And though the woman will have desires contrary to it, God is seen to it to make sure that the created order remains established. However, just as there is hope even in the pain of her childbearing, there's also hope here 
There is hope that by repenting of her sins, by being set free by this promised offspring from the dominion of sin, from the dominion of desires contrary to her husband, there is hope she can have desires to help her husband serve their king together. There is hope that she can joyfully submit to a godly husband that would and serve God's purposes in this world with him. There's hope that she will have a husband who will rule over her by loving her, cherishing her, leading her towards holiness for the sake of her eternal good, leading her in serving Christ together as their king. And what about the man? Look at verses 17 to 19 with me again. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We can see in verse 17 that God begins by giving the reason for the punishment that follows for Adam. Instead of leading his wife in obedience to God, he listened to her voice and followed her in disobedience. As Eve had sinfully listened to the voice of the serpent, Adam sinfully listened to her, and that is the reason for what follows for him. And we need to notice again in the last part of verse 17 that God doesn't curse the man directly, but he punishes him indirectly as he curses the ground that man is going to labor and toil in. Man, as he works the ground to eat from it, will now have pain in doing so all his life. He will have pain in that though the ground will yield plants for him to eat and his family to eat, however, it is going to yield him thorns and thistles. His work will be met with frustration, toil, pain. These things will be the hallmark of his work in the earth to cultivate it, to provide food for himself and others. Man's labor is going to be toilsome as he eats by the intense effort that causes him to sweat until he eventually dies. The man's sin was in his eating, and now his eating is going to be a toilsome task. Lastly, we can see at the end of verse 19 that the man will die. He will give back the breath of life that was given to him in the garden, and he will return to the dust from which he was taken. God had threatened death, and death is exactly what man will receive. Adam is now under the curse of the law that he had broken at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We close this morning and prepare to spend some time praying and reflecting on the truths from this passage. We must recognize that while Eve and all the women that would follow her would receive her punishment, we must recognize that while that is true, Adam was the head of mankind. Adam was our covenant representative. And because this is the case, his punishment sp- spread to both men and women. Adam plunged all mankind, all men and all women under this curse because we know the wages of sin is death. But God, beloved. But thanks be to God. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. The first Adam plunged us all into slavery to sin and death. So even those 
that the promised offspring of Eve that will be redeemed, even they will suffer the death of their bodies. But as we close, beloved, the good news is that Satan and the ground and death will one day have to give up the bodies of the redeemed. O beloved, sin shall have no dominion over us, neither shall the wages of sin. Our hope, beloved, is not found in this world. Our hope is found in a resurrection. Beloved, our hope is found in a resurrection from the grave to new life, to a new heavens, to a new earth. And this is exactly what our Savior, the last Adam, accomplished for us. And so now, having been united to Christ by faith, we can look at death. We can look at the grave. And we can say with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of death is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. O great God of highest heaven, our desire is that you would magnify your name in and through us. You, your redeemed people who've gathered together this morning to offer up songs of thanksgiving and praise, to have you minister to us through your word and by your spirit, to eat and partake from your table, to do these ordinary things, God, to see what you will do the glory of your great name. Oh God, help us as your people to cling to the promise of Genesis 3.15. Oh God, help us to see the glories of what we know in the name of our Savior, Jesus, the glories of what we know as we see in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection, the glories of what we know that right now he is seated at your right hand, ruling over us, interceding for us. Help us to see that these glories began in seed form here in Genesis 3.15. That this promise that we know more about is the same promise that all of the redeemed who have ever been who are who, or who shall ever be gathered under Christ the head, this is the promise that we all cling to. That an offspring came from the woman, born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and rose again. And we await his return, God. Help us. Help us as we do to count every day a salvation, another day to seek and save that which is lost, another day to enjoy the salvation that our Savior has purchased for us, another day to enjoy the fact that we don't have to have anxiety, Satan does, another day to enjoy the fact that the gospel produces peace in our homes, Another day for our children to enjoy a seeing a husband love his wife as Christ loves the church and learning from that. And a wife submitting to her husband in all things as the church does to its head. To see that and to savor that and then to, to be marinated in that such that we live in this world in such a way that the world looks at us and says, what is wrong with those people? Father, help us to be willing, to be willing to forsake the riches of this world and to receive with joy the reproaches of Christ. 
Help us to see in our passage this morning that this enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman still exists. And help us to examine our lives to see which we belong to. Do we love your people, God? Oh, teach us now by your Spirit where we are at. Do we love your people or do we hate gathering with your people? Do we wish, do we, do we long for excuses not to do so? Do we love your people, Father, or do we seek in the privacy of our friendships and private conversations to deride them, to speak ill against them, to persecute them? Oh, Father, help us to see which seed we belong to. And Father, for the unbelievers among us who are among the seed of the serpent, Father, we give you thanks and praise that you have gathered them together with us this morning. We thank you, Father, that the seed of the serpent has heard your gospel. And our prayer, Father, is that those who walked in here this morning as seed of the serpent would walk out seed of the woman children of the promised offspring, heirs to eternity. Oh God, do your work by your Spirit this morning in all of our lives. And we ask these things in our King's name. Amen.